0: Now, for some of you, it's time to go home and for some of us, it's time to continue. The um, practice that we need to do in daily life is obviously to continue with the mindfulness and since I've already explained it in excruciating detail, I don't think any more is necessary. There, what is necessary is to remember it and then to do it. The other thing that is obvious, and I've already mentioned several times also, is to continue with the meditation practice regularly, daily, and without expectation, but with determination. If we don't do it regularly, if we don't do it every day, it's really not being fair to our own mind. It's like not eating daily, not sleeping daily, Just when we, if we were to do that, like, oh, I'm too busy, I can't have time to sleep, I don't have time to eat, well, a few people do that. In fact, I don't think that many people ever have done that. They eat, they sleep, they've got all sorts of time for that, for washing, for washing clothes, for washing the body, combing their hair to cut their nails. I'm not saying one shouldn't do it, but, I mean, that's time for that. Nobody has any excuses for that. That's time for taking a rest. So if we don't have that time for our mind, we're really shortchanging ourselves um, quite um, markedly because this is the most important thing to do. And one of the things we should refrain from at all times, if we can, is to make a judgment what hap- what, whether our meditation was good or bad. If it's very, very excellent, we can be grateful. But what is a bad meditation? Who knows what's a bad meditation? I've never seen it described anywhere. In any, any book, and anywhere in the Pali Canon, I can't find anything that says about bad meditation. I can't even find anything about good meditation. I can only find meditation, concentration, mindfulness. That one can find. So one could say, now, today I haven't um, been extremely concentrated, but what have I done instead? All right. First thing, I have not been lazy, I have sat down to do it, so I have conquered sloth and torpor. I have made right effort, so I've made good karma. My intention was good. I have kept going my practice so that it isn't interrupted, so that's good effort, good intention. So those two things are first of all. Then, I've actually become aware every time I, I, or maybe every second time, when the mind was uh, flying off. So, the awareness has been sharpened, and I have become aware of what my mind's actually doing. So, most if I hadn't meditated, I wouldn't have been aware of what my mind is doing. I would have taken it for granted, like I've always done. And then, not only that, but I actually was concentrated for five minutes. Four minutes, three minutes, two minutes, who knows? So those were moments of purification, which I wouldn't have had otherwise. Every moment of concentration is a moment of purification. So, every cloud has a silver lining. It's uh, foolishness to think of oneself as a great meditator, no matter how great one may be, but it's equally foolish to think of oneself as a bad meditator. One can quite rightfully think of oneself as a meditator if one does it every day. There's no need to think anything else. Good, bad, medium, what does it matter? The actual sitting down on the pillow brings benefits. It has immediate benefits. And with that, one can be joyful and happy about the effort one is making and if that joyfulness and happiness is within meditation works better so it is useful to think in those terms that it is a part of one's daily life just as eating for the body so is and resting for the body so is meditation for the mind. It gets then health food because it has mindfulness and attention and it gets also some rest because it, for at least some time it isn't thinking. And if we treat our mind properly, it will treat us properly. If we don't, It's not interested. It will keep on doing what it's always done. So, with that in mind, daily meditation, and trying to keep the four foundations of mindfulness going, whichever one is practical and applicable. It can be the actions of the body, and... At times that is very applicable. It can be just whatever one is doing with one's hands or with one's feet or with one's whole body. Or it can be the the feelings which arise or it can be our mental states or the mental content. Now when we think of the mental content maybe one of the um, easier things to remember are the five hindrances and to check out whether that or the opposite has arisen. That would, in essence, be sufficient to know whether it's wholesome or unwholesome. And in daily life, where many things happen, One can't take, often, not too much time to check this out, but a little bit of time is always there, because the mind is very fast. It can do things very fast anyway, most minds can. The Buddha said we can have 3,000 mind moments in the blink of an eyelid. So everybody's got time to watch the blink of an eyelid to see what's going on in the mind. And luckily, we don't have three thousand mind moments all the time with a blink of an eyelid. But we could. It's possible. So you can see there is time to check oneself out because the mind is so quick. Now, with our um, um, mindfulness that we become aware of the uh, uh, way we are actually responding, we will also be able to keep our reactions more in line with the way we want them to be. And not, don't get um, surprised by an unpleasant reaction which we actually would have preferred not to have. Because mindfulness acts like a brake on a car. If we drive a car without a brake, it's a potential suicide or potential murder even because we could easily careen into another car. So if we live a life without mindfulness, it's potential emotional suicide, and also emotional aggression, because we're not watching. <clears throat> so if we have um, a proper way of driving a car, we would and have brakes in a car, we would obviously step on the brakes when we get into a dangerous curve, before we get into that dangerous curve. If we step on that brake while we're in that curve, that spells disaster. So, before we get into the dangerous curve, we step on a brake and slow ourselves down, and as we get into that curve, we have time to adjust the steering wheel. Well, it's the same with mindfulness. We step on the brake of mindfulness before anything happens, and then we can adjust where the mind can go that combines mindfulness with clear comprehension and if we look at mindfulness as this break we will be very happy to slow down our reactions not to the point where they disappear some people get that completely wrong they think if they don't react nothing can happen we might as well you know clamp their lips shut and uh, that's not then they don't have any kind of communication well that's not the idea of it at all it's a purification system for oneself it's not uh, stopping communication on the contrary so it's supposed to help communication so with these um, um, with our mindfulness we can actually have um, a feeling of security within, Because it's just like having a b- good brakes in the car. I mean, you feel fairly secure, you can stop in time. I mean, there can always be an accident. People have accidents. But at least you know you've got something to stop the car in case there is something on the road. Well, mindfulness, exactly that, gives one a feeling of security. I've got something I can adjust, I can stop myself. And this feeling of security gives self-confidence, and with that self-confidence, everything works easier. Lack of self-confidence is one of the um, hindrances which also spell, unfortunately, too much ego. They don't spell no ego. It's um, Everything that goes to the extreme is always an an ego um, expression. It's only when the balance comes in the middle that we have seen some reality. Obviously, we only get rid of this um, unfortunate illusion when we have um, insight. But the, uh, the balancing act makes it already possible that we see clearly inferiority complex and superiority complex are both based on me. I'm no good, I'm fantastic. Either way, doesn't matter. Both are unpleasant. For the owner of them, and for other people too. The one with the inferiority complex always needs help, and the one with the superiority complex is always pushing everybody out of the way. So both are unpleasant to live with, and for the person who has them, particularly unpleasant. I think in that case, the inferiority of complex is more difficult to live with uh, for the person who has it than the superiority complex, because the superiority complex always finds a justification system, always finds out how wonderful one is. Now, obviously, everybody errs at one time or another in one direction or the other, but when we notice it, that's the time to make an adjustment. Only mindfulness can do that. <clears throat> Mindfulness coupled with clear comprehension. It makes the adjustments. The, uh, the stepping on the car brake is the moment of becoming aware. And then shifting the steering wheel, one has to know which direction to shift it. So that's clear comprehension. And with that, one has a handle on the uh, everyday activities quite well our mental emotional states are, of course, something that we could watch to great benefit. But in daily life, we may slip past them and only become aware when the mind already has a content. It's all right. Whatever we become aware of, the awareness counts. It doesn't really matter what we which one of them is um, body awareness, action awareness, is very helpful if nothing much is happening. If there's a lot of things happening, one sometimes has to have external m- mindfulness. One has to watch what's happening around one. That too is mindfulness. One can't just sort of blindly push through a crowd. If everybody is together like this, one has to maybe walk around it. Well, one has to see what's going on. So external mindfulness is just um practical and applicable at times as the internal mindfulness, particularly when it concerns the body action, but also when it concerns mental-emotional states of other people. We only will know them when we've known our own. Our um, surroundings, other people, our mirror. And in that mirror we will only find all the things that we already know. We can't see a thing that we haven't known ourselves. That's why we say, only a Buddha knows a Buddha. Nobody who is not enlightened would ever know what an enlightened person feels like. Impossible. How would we know? looks exactly like everybody else. talks exactly like everybody else. How would we know? But we are very um, able to uh, be aware of the fact that there's an angry person in front of us. Because we all know what it is like to be angry. No problem at all. But if we've got a Buddha in front of us, how would we know? We can only guess, and probably guess wrong. Because we're using the criteria that we can use, and they're not applicable then. So whatever we know about another person is all that that we know about ourselves. Whether we've admitted it or not doesn't matter. Now, some of the things that we know about another person, and if we have practiced, may may be things that we used to own, maybe used to be afflicted with. Some of the things we know about other people are the things we are afflicted with now. So, that's all we know about other people. And if we can feel that somebody else is very loving, Well, obviously, we must know what that feels like. So whatever it is, if we're guessing, that's no good. But if we know it from feeling what's going on, then it's a mirror image. And that is external mindfulness, which will help us to see ourselves more clearly, because it is helpful to have a mirror in front of one. If we want to know whether these clothes have any spots on them, it's very helpful to have a mirror and to look. Because one can't see oneself in the back and one can't see down below, so very nice to have a mirror and see. Same external mindfulness. Mirror image, very helpful. Everybody gets together with people every day, some people, anyway. So all are mirroring, and they are also mirroring Anicca Dukkanata. So that's also helpful. Now, not only with the mindfulness we also have another thing that we can do in daily practice. And it's extremely important for everyone who really wants to practice. And that is to re-arouse an understanding of impermanence over and over and over, and not forget the more we rearrouse that, the more it becomes an inner reality. The reason we have to do it so many times is because all this life and all the past lives we have gone lightly on our way without ever paying attention to it. On the contrary, we've been trying to make things permanent. Relationships, ownership, our body, everything. We're trying to make it permanent. So it is Deeply embedded, the opposite. That's why the new thing has to be repeated over and over again. Until it becomes so um, one's own ex- uh, feeling that it arises automatically in the mind. Now, during the course, it may have risen automatically. Please don't rest on your laurels. The world out there has a very insidious uh, habit of impinging on our mind very strongly. Everything that happens impinges on the mind, and the mind just lets it all go again. Not that that particular insight that one has had gets lost, but it isn't in the forefront of the mind. So, to re the understanding, any understanding that one has said about impermanence, which is the most suitable for daily life, because if one constantly thinks of dukkha, the whole thing is going to feel like a, a valley of tears and rather unfortunate. If there's a deep understanding of dukkha, then it's alright, but if it's just seeing the misery it may make life more difficult. It doesn't matter which one of the three we see fully. All three, anicca, dukkha, natta, lead to complete freedom, if it's been seen completely. Now, if one constantly sees dukkha and hasn't had the uh, depths of understanding and is still disliking dukkha, like every ordinary person does, then one always sees the dark side only and particularly in oneself and then when all the rest of the misery arises. So Anicca, impermanence, is really the most um, applicable in a daily life to keep re-arousing that and see it. Obviously it follows that that which is impermanent cannot be fully satisfying and that which is impermanent and not fully satisfying cannot have a core substance. Work together. So that is just my um, suggestion to use implement. If we meditate every day, morning and evening, or whenever we can manage, depending on the kind of work we do, some people have work hours which need to other arrangements, and Try to remember mindfulness and clear comprehension and re-arouse the understanding of impermanence. As often as we can possibly remember, we have a practice path. It's very helpful to meditate together with others at least once a week if such people are around. If one has somebody else in one's own home who meditates, that's also extremely helpful. Might be the one that gets one out of bed, says, come on, let's go, very helpful. If that's not the case, if there are, um, if there's a group somewhere that one can go to, that is also very good. Especially if one hasn't been meditating for so very long, because it always seems as if one were the odd man or odd woman out. Nobody is doing it. But, in fact, somebody is doing it. One just has to have the connection to some people, even if it's only two or three. If there's no group wherever you live, make one. Very simple. One of my favorite sayings is by Rabbi Hillel, who was, um, at the time of the Roman conquest, Of the Jewish Temple, the year 73 of our time, who said, If not now, when? If not me, who? That's an excellent saying. Couldn't be any better. Who's going to do it? Me. Who else? When? Now. There's no future. The future is all concept. Tomorrow, yes, of course. But when tomorrow is reality, it's called today. It can never arrive tomorrow. It's all in here, thinking, little wheels turning. Tomorrow, next day, next year, next life. Well, we don't have that so badly. That's more in Asia. Next life, We don't have that affliction so badly. But... uh, Next year, yes. We're afflicted with that one. Or something, maybe even next month, whatever it is. Well, there is no such thing. There's only now. That's all there is. Whatever is called tomorrow never arises. When it arises, it's now. So, if not now, when? If not me, who? And uh, it's worthwhile remembering that. It has uh, the effect of um, arousing a bit of urgency which is one of the factors of the past. If we watch our thoughts and our, and our thought content obviously we're going to try make it more wholesome. If we watch our emotional states, obviously we're going to try and have those on the beneficial level. That's a purification in everyday life. We have discussed all these ways and means of that and that is a spiritual path. Whether we then add to it other little refinements, that's up to each person what they like doing. Some people like to have um, some ritual to make it more and make more impression on the mind, that's fine. Some people don't like any of that. Whatever. This would be the bare bones of the practice. Because I had intended to um, tell you about the ten virtues, I will now mention those because they also have an application to our daily living, to see whether they arise or not and to see that the Buddha mentioned these ten as the practice path towards enlightenment. And in those ten you will find some that we have already discussed because they are always the same kind of virtues again and again. So it is this jigsaw puzzle finally coming together, the whole thing falling into one very nice picture, namely the enlightened one, who probably is a blank page, because the picture then finally resolves into a blank page. It doesn't mean that the enlightened one doesn't think. It's just that there's nobody there anymore that says, I am. There are ten. They're called ten paramis or paramitas. Now, literally translated, that word means that what takes you beyond beyond. We translated it as, as the ten perfections or the ten virtues. Ten perfections may be better. That what takes you beyond beyond our mentality of the marketplace beyond this um, constant round of liking and disliking, round of birth and death, beyond that. I'll mention the ten, and you will find quite easily that some of them we've already discussed. First one is generosity. Second one is moral conduct. Third one, renunciation. Fourth one is wisdom. Fifth one is truthfulness. Sixth one is patience, energy, and determination. And the last two are loving kindness and equanimity. Now, moral conduct was the beginning of this discourse. And wisdom means wisdom insight. And that took up, I think, six or seven tapes, so mm-hmm. that should be enough <laughs> wisdom insight. Then, what we've also had already is energy as one of the seven factors of enlightenment. And determination has cropped up again and again as a necessary Adjunct in our meditation practice to determine the mind to go along a certain path, sit down with that determination in mind, and then drop the whole thing. So, determination, which is also willpower, is a very important aspect of character of a person. It is that which keeps us from going back from removing ourselves from the difficulties. If we have willpower, we will try our very best under all circumstances. So that's the determination. And we I have mentioned it before. Loving-kindness and and, um, equanimity, of course, two of the four divine abidings, the four brahma-viharas, and sufficiently discussed. First aspect, generosity. I have mentioned that in the context of giving love and compassion. That's the generosity of the heart. Generosity, of course, means also giving material things, it means being there for others, having time for others, lending an ear, lending a hand, sharing one's skills, not being overly concerned with oneself and one's own satisfactions, but recognizing the fact that far more satisfaction comes when we actually give when we have that ability to join in that feeling of togetherness. Now, again, the more we have already experienced through the meditative practice that there is no separate being, that it is nothing but an optical illusion, generosity becomes a a matter of course, because what does it matter? Who's got it? And that fear that I myself not going to have enough. Enough for what? It's very difficult to ascertain. What is enough? A person who has maybe a thousand dollars thinks that's enough. And a person who has a million may think it's not enough. Maybe you have to have two because of taxes, because of uh, old age, because of sickness, because of who knows what all. Who knows what's enough? The Buddha said there are four things which are required, requisites. Clothing, shelter, food, and medicine. He also gave a very uh, exact information on how to use one's income. In fact, he gave exact information about anything, anything and everything, to the point of how to build a toilet. And we can read it and do it, and they're very, very good, they're being used in Thailand, in all the monasteries. How to use one's income? One needs one quarter to feed oneself and one's family one needs one quarter <clears throat> to um, operate one's business business expenses one needs one quarter to lay by for emergencies and one quarter to give away so he given exact information how much one should give away of one's income or of one's um, uh, wealth there were people in the Buddha's time who gave away far more than that. I mentioned Anathapindika, this millionaire um, follower of the Buddha. He spent one-third of his wealth on buying the monastery and another third on furnishing it, building kuti's and putting the necessary equipment in the kuti's. So he had only one-third left. So he was... Um, um, more generous, and the Buddha calls that the generosity of a king. Anatapinika has mentioned many times, there was another um, supporter, a Visaka, a woman, and uh, she was very wealthy and she was also like that, also give away a lot supporting the Buddha. So the Buddha calls that the generosity of a king, and then rather the generosity of a friend, which is sharing. And then there's the generosity of a beggar that means giving away what I don't need anyway. Stuff I'd rather be rid of. So, generosity is the first of those ten um, paramis, the ten perfections. Uh, not that the others are not equally important, but i mentioned already once before that on these lists the first one opens the door. And why does generosity open the door? Because it means less self concern. It, re- it minimizes a little our ego centricity and our separation illusion. Now, obviously, the Buddha did say, and this is also a very important. Um reminder that one should use wisdom and discrimination where one gives now the vinegar um, as I said, gave it to the Buddha. well, there was hardly any uh, worry about that, as yes, he was going to use it nicely um, so we should be have some wisdom where our generosity goes but not to be generous because one justifies that with, I can't find anybody who is well to give it to. That's also not the way it is. So if we, now this is also far more popular in the East than in the West, that one gives, is very generous for the reason of gaining merit that is not wholehearted giving. That's half-hearted giving. I want a result from that. It's not so common here because we don't have this idea of making merit so much. It is um, completely uh, imbued in these societies, I would, Buddhist societies of the, of Asia. Giving is done for giving's sake. And we never should give for hoping for gratitude. First of all, gratitude, as I already said, is a very rare quality in human beings. And secondly, it's again wanting something. Giving is the opposite of wanting. It's giving it away. So, we have the ability to really see it as a purification system. And that's what all these perfections are, purification. Moral conduct we have already discussed, renunciation. Renunciation does not mean living in a cave. It also does not mean becoming monk or nun. It can, but it doesn't have that implication right from the start. Renunciation means renouncing greed and hate. That's way we know how. By guarding one's senses, by following mor- moral conduct, by substituting the unwholesome with the wholesome, by recognizing it. And you know very well, as I've said before, greed and hate are um, like Uh, the the theme song and underneath you can find dislike, irritation, anger uh, fear um, rejection, resistance um. and under greed you can find wanting, liking pride is also under greed Um, so all these uh, other states of mind and emotion which we know about so renunciation means just that now, how we do that, that's the second matter. Whether we think we could do it better in a cave, or whether we can stay at home and do it nicely there, or whether we want to become a monk or a nun, that's one's personal decision. But renouncing greed and hate, that's what renunciation is all about. And without a renunciation of that sort, at least temporarily, there's no way to do the jhanas. To have samadhi, right concentration. Because at that time we have to be secluded from all our uh, sense gratifications. We even have to be secluded to a great extent from the ego support, which is done through thinking. So, renunciation is a very important aspect of the whole of the teaching, and as I said, all of these ten. Are designed for purification. Wisdom we know inside, wisdom inside, truthfulness. Now, truthfulness, such a, is very interesting because it does not just mean not lying. Naturally, it means that, not lying. But it means far more than that. It means to be able to be truthful to oneself about oneself. And that is not as easy as it may sound, and anybody who has tried that might have become aware of the fact that it isn't so easy. Again, we have the extremes, and what is more common is the idea of downgrading oneself, not liking and loving oneself, although one has the idea that one is basically a very nice person, but... One can't find any real support system for that. That's why one's looking to other people, that they should. Mm. Okay. So downgrading oneself is the um, um, is not truthful, because we all have the six roots, the three roots of evil and the three roots of good. And we need to see all six, and only then it's truthful. And when we see all six, then we can understand that we need to foster, cultivate and develop the three roots of good. And see the three roots of evil as the difficulty or the obstacles to becoming enlightened. So what's there to cry about? I mean, there are very few enlightened people around, so we're in very good company, aren't we? And uh, the, uh, the difficulty that... Most people have the difficulty of um, disliking them themselves, but there are some, of course, who don't. It's an easy, uh, equally foolish not to see the three roots of evil, that is clear, um, but it seems from what people say and how they act is that they find most people find it difficult to love themselves until they've learned it. That means they can't see their good side. The three roots of evil are greed, hate, and delusion, and the three roots of good are generosity, love, and wisdom and we've got all six, we get born with all six and they can be observed in this tiniest infant. Very interesting, tiniest infant who doesn't even have intention behind it, they're just there. So this truthfulness about oneself, to oneself, is the recognition about oneself, which makes it possible to practice properly. Recognition, no blame, change. That's what it's all about. Truthfulness, of course, also includes searching for absolute truth. We live in relative truth, relatively speaking, we're all separate people sitting on separate cushions, having all our separate things to do and having to protect ourselves and look after ourselves, that's relatively speaking. Absolutely speaking, there's nobody here. Nothing but a process, all connected, all together, the whole creation, all one. That's absolutely speaking. So what we do is we search to find out within ourselves whether through our practice we can get more of an inkling of this so that this ego illusion is finally replaced with wisdom insight. That kind of truthfulness, that kind of search, brings one uh, again and again to the practice and there is then less likelihood of um, falling away from the uh, daily practice. Patience. Patience is also a purification system, because patience is also um, a diminishing of one's own wishes. If we have... Um, it's, it's not being indifferent, which can also happen. We can see that, that a person just doesn't care, and nothing gets done. And that's not uncommon and uh, it's actually a worldwide sickness and um, but patience means that one has something in mind that needs to be done and one is patiently working at it one doesn't look just for the result but one recognizes that there is a path to be trodden now that patience for instance is extremely important on the spiritual path let's say we have now heard about enlightenment and we are also agreeing to the fact that that's very desirable. And so we can compare that to the top of a mountain. And we've heard that the top of this mountain is very, the air is completely pure, everybody is completely happy there, the view is magnificent. So we want to be on top of this mountain. How are we going to get up there? We've got to climb. But if we c- don't climb patiently, step by step, and watch each step with mindfulness so that we don't tread on some rolling stones and fall headlong down or fall into a crevice, but constantly keep our eyes on that top, which is usually shrouded in clouds anyway, we can't see it, and say, oh, such a wonderful mountain top. I must get there. I must be there. Oh, we're never going to get there because we're not going to walk patiently, step by step. Walking patiently, step by step, on the spiritual path, um, let's go of resultants. One knows one has that pathway which leads to the mountaintop, but the journey up there is the important thing, and not the result. Now, if that is not in the mind, one can have again, two results which are detrimental. One may be that one thinks one's already up there and hasn't hardly started. Because one is so imbued in the mind one wants to be up there that one takes that wanting for the reality. Sounds absurd, doesn't it? But it's not uncommon. And the other thing that happens is, although one doesn't think one is up there, because one is constantly only thinking of that that practice isn't happening at all. It's also not uncommon, even though it sounds so absurd. I've been at this now for 17 years. Uh, You need everything. It seems that nobody should fall into those errors, but one does. The mind is a magician. It can do anything. It can proclaim enlightenment to someone who's hardly started on the pathway, and it can also take one away from practice by thinking of nothing except the the goal. Now, in any endeavor, whether it's business, sports, whatever it may be, to think of the goal is only to know where one is going. Even in a football game, we have to know it's supposed to go into the goal, the the ball, but you've got to do every step on the way to get there. You just have to know where it is, and that's it, finished. And then one goes. Well, that's patience. And then patience, of course, with that also translates with other people where one knows that they are maybe also patiently trying, but... It's a it's a very um, difficult pathway, and they haven't got very far in that pathway yet. So the patient's with the other people. So we have a visitor. Mm-hmm. No, not coming. <laughs> well, come. Wouldn't let you hear a bit of Dhamma, come. <laughs> Get a bit of rebirth, come. Come. <laughs> Not interested, see? <laughs> All the opportunities, but not interested. So that also happens. So this is a, a very important quality because, again, it helps us, it purifies us, not to look for resultants. It purifies to in a, in also in the sense that we have patience with our own difficulties. We don't blame them, we are patient with them. And then we can have more patience with other people's difficulties. So it is a purification system again. Now I think these are all the um, perfections which we have not touched upon during other um, talks and other in other contexts, because we did have the, um, the others have already been mentioned. I don't necessar- not necessary to repeat that. But again, these are daily practice. Now of course we can't just make ourselves have wisdom, obviously, but by remembering impermanence, we do gain more insight. And patience with ourselves, It's a necessary factor in everything, even in just mundane living. And our generosity will show itself in everything we do, because people who are naturally generous without ulterior motives, and that's really the criteria, without ulterior motives, They are people who usually feel light-hearted and have many friends. Not because money is being handed around. Money is not always a criteria of generosity. You can be generous without money. It's a generosity of spirit, of inclusion, of togetherness. And the ulterior motive is something which really needs to be examined because it helps us to know our intentions. Now, if we have an ulterior motive, and if it's a good motive, it's all right, it's fine. But it may not be. Our generosity may actually have an expectation behind it. So we need to check that out. One thing is certain. The good karma that we make out of these, particularly generosity, but out of any of them, is immediate. We immediately have a feeling of happiness, a feeling of joy, of having been able to do this good thing, and this is the only result which we should actually watch out for, whether that result is there. And then we see how purifying generosity, patience, truthfulness can be. In generosity, we have an immediate feeling of being happy. That's a karma resultant. Whether there's anybody there that's grateful, it's a totally immaterial matter, because a gratitude is a good karma for the person who has it. It's got nothing to do with the giver anymore. I'll now give you a chance to ask last questions if you have, and then we'll do our last loving kindness meditation together and sharing of merits. Hmm. So, to, the the to, to know that you're not, but to constantly look up there to the top of the mountain and thereby not practice. Hmm. Not not watch your step. You know, just have your eyes up there and not watching your steps and fall down. As you don't watch your step, step on some rubble, fall up, fall down, step in a crevice, fall down, and pick yourself up and keep looking and always fall down. Practice is not is um, as, as not uh, productive. Not productive. Anything else? Last chance. <laughs> oh yes. Yeah. This sutta gives the bare bones of everything we've talked about the last two weeks, is it? Yes. Yeah. Did she speak about the sutta? No. Not at all. Sort of Samanapala Sutta second sutta of the Dighanikaya. It's a fruit of. It's in English called fruit of recluse ship. Second sutta in the long discourses. Not, not useful. If you, if you then... Um, well, the... Co- no, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I really don't think so. It's... Um, you see, it has the, um, the story in it. The storyline is there but it certainly doesn't have the detail. and has a storyline. The storyline, I must give you the end of the storyline, which I haven't done. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I better do that now. <laughs> uh, so you remember that this king, Ayatasattu, who had murdered his father, Bimbisara, who had been a very righteous and good king, had been, was now very remorseful, and um, now was looking for some spiritual guidance and he had tried all the other uh, sixth grade teachers which were available in that area, whose names are known, and uh, then finally came to the Buddha and asked him, uh, what is the fruit of living like you do, because he wanted to find a path for himself. He wasn't... the Buddha knew that, knew the whole story, King Bimbisara, the father, had been a follower of the Buddha and a good friend. They were um, contemporaries, so he knew the whole thing. And uh, he also knew that King Ayasattu was not asking out of curiosity um, what is the fruit of, of, of uh, spiritual life. He was asking because he was looking for something. He was very restless and very agitated and remorseful and regretful about his deed. So the Buddha first showed him that the uh, first uh, two fruits were becoming a uh, monk, uh, because then you didn't have to, the first one didn't have to uh, be pushed around by, by the king anymore, not being a slave anymore, and the second one being household, so householder didn't have to pay taxes. That's quite a nice thought actually, isn't it? Not to pay taxes. Mm-hmm. And uh, he didn't have to uh, um, do as he was bidden either, but uh, was a free person to practice. And then, of course, the king wasn't satisfied with that. He said, well, isn't there any more? And um, then, the first, then the Buddha talked about moral conduct, the four required things for um, going on the spiritual path. And then he, the first fruit was the first jhana. And the second fruit, the second, and the third, the third. Sorry, the third fruit is the first jhana, the fourth, fifth, and sixth are the four jhanas. So these are then the higher fruits. The first two are sort of like um, ordinary, mundane fruits. And then the four jhanas, which are the next higher fruit. So now we've got already six fruits. And then the Buddha said that if one practices and if becomes a master of the jhanas, One also has, the first thing that, actually in this one, is the insight. But it's, now I give you a very detailed explanation of insight, in the sutta itself, in this particular sutta itself, it's only half a page. Um, It it, uh, says that because of this insight, the cankers are removed, which are the... um, no, the underlying tendencies that we have which are more subtle than the hindrances but they are the same thing that you sometimes have different names for them but they are the subtle hindrances the uh, five hindrances which we have talked about are pretty gross because uh, anger and and um, Um, greed and these things are our... we can notice them. But then there are the subtle ones underneath, and we could say instead of anger, it's irritation. And instead of greed, it's preferring, having preferences, and going after one's preferences. So these are the underlying tendencies, and because of complete insight, now that's the next step after the fourth jhana, the complete insight, The there is that is eliminated, which means enlightenment. The complete insight means that there's really nobody, there's only this process of coming and going of input and output. And so with that, those underlying tendencies are removed. And then he gives six ways of having supernatural powers. Now the long discourses are famous for that. That's uh, um, one section of the of the Pali Canon, where there's a lot of talk about supernatural powers, and it's a very Indian thing, of course. And it's called the divine ear and the divine eye, which means um, clairvoyance and clairaudience. And um, it also uh, talks about reading minds, reading the mind of others, um, when one wants to and being able to make one out of many and many out of one, like feeding the masses with seven loaves of bread, same thing. Walking on water, in that case, in this case walking through walls. And so these are the, um, what well we call them supernatural powers. Uh, they are not supernatural, they are the higher powers which not necessarily are achieved by all enlightened people. They are achieved by those who have made it their life's work to become master of the jhana completely and utterly and have put their attention to those um, powers. Now the Buddha evidently had them. but he wouldn't, but he didn't use them. He did read the mind of others when he was teaching, because it's a teaching aid. Because sometimes people would ask questions, and this is very common then and now, which wasn't what they wanted to know at all. So he answered to what they were thinking, not what they were saying. Because people have difficulty to actually express what they're thinking. It comes out in different words, and so we, he did that, when it was necessary. He did, uh, in emergencies, use clairvoyance and clairvoyance, but not as a regular diet. And he also spoke against it, very much for anyone who is not fully enlightened, who is not around. because it takes the energy which goes to enlightenment away on a side issue. And He also forbade monks and nuns to say that they had any powers like that or to show them. Anyone. If there was a fully enlightened person and there was a need to do this, then it was all right. But it had to be a need, an absolute need. And that arose sometimes, but very rarely. So he talks about these powers which arise because they're going to make an enormous impression on the king, of course that uh, the Buddha who says, all right, now that is a fully enlightened person, and now he has clear audience and clairvoyance, and he can read the minds of others, and he can make one out of many, and many out of one, um, and yeah, one out of many, and many out of, yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> and he can walk through walls. So these are all these superpowers, and there's, these are six powers, and the other were seven fruits, so these, um, um, no, there were seven powers. Oh, yeah. The last one is that, so there were six superpowers, and then the last one is that the person who has done all this is a person who has accomplished the whole holy life. And um, so that's the fruits that are there. And so King Arjasatu, uh declares himself a follower of the Buddha for life. And then he says to the Buddha, may I tell you what's bothering me? And the Buddha says, yes, of course the Buddha knew anyway what was bothering him. But he said, yes, you can tell me. And so he says that he had so much regret that he had killed his father. He'd done a really terrible thing. He realizes this now. And the Buddha says, yes, it is good that you're realizing this now, that you've done this terrible thing. And uh, so then the king goes away. And the Buddha said then to his monks, he said, if he hadn't done this deed, he could have become enlightened in this life. Because he's now he's now a follower and he wants to do these things and his mind is very open but because he's done this deed in this life he hasn't got a chance in this life. So, anyway, the king felt first of all much better after confessing to the Buddha what he'd done so you see that's what confession is all about. It doesn't make you pure but it makes you feel better because you've told somebody what you've done. And uh, so he felt much better. And also he became a follower of the Buddha for life, which helped him also in his, um, in that life, even though he had done this terrible deed. This is a, um, the, one of the, one, two, three, four, uh, five, one of the five heinous crimes, um, which have to be paid for with, um, a very, um, well, a very, um, hellish uh, existence um, where there is no way that they, you can make enough good karma to um, not have it fruit. These will fruit, these five and they are patricide and matricide and wounding a Buddha, killing a, killing an Arahant and putting a schism in the Sangha. Now putting a schism in the Sangha has been a popular pastime for, for the last two uh, 2,000 years, so it's not nothing new. And Devadatta, whom I mentioned yesterday, the cousin of the Buddha, was also a monk, uh, wounded the Buddha once, and had to um, had this, uh, as a result, the Buddha said, had this very existence very as a result, but when that is over, that also is impermanent, he will become enlightened, the Buddha said because that hellish existence is also impermanent, all everything all existences are impermanent. So King Ayasattu would have to go through this also, this uh, very unpleasant result, and then uh, come back in another way. But we must remember, when I say this and when we read this, that there is this person having this rebirth and that rebirth, there is no person. It is a reverse, yes, it is a re-arising of karmic resultants, but there is nobody there. So it isn't you or me, and it wasn't you or me, and it isn't you or me now. So it is a totally impersonal process, which keeps going and going and going. That's, and I'm saying that with emphasis because it means anything, all that matters. Is what we do in this life. What we've done before, we have no idea. And what we're going to do next time, well, who cares? This life, that's all that matters. And the, um, in this case, um, the Buddha didn't tell King Ajayafatu that he would have these terrible results, but he told the monks that this would be a result of patricide. So um, he became his father. And that's the end of the storyline. Hmm. but I don't think that there's any use in reading the sutta itself unless you want to check out whether I've said everything correctly (laughs) 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 I mean reading the sutta itself would take 20 minutes 30 minutes that's that's very short nothing much in it there's commentaries and sub-commentaries for it and uh, so reading the whole thing uh, is then a book, and uh, it's like about that, like that. But uh, and of, for interest's sake, yes, why not? If one is interested to read that sort of thing, why not? But the the real real importance of reading the Buddha's discourses comes when one knows enough to read it and recognize exactly what one has to practice when one actually knows enough already. So in the beginning it's much better to read those suttas which have um, a commentary by a person like Nanaponika who explains what it means. Now, not the old commentaries and and sub-commentaries. They don't explain. They explain a monk is a monk because he's a monk. I mean that, that that's not that's not the kind of commentary I mean. Uh, Nanapronika has explained the suttas um, in a way where you know what, it, what the practice is all about. So those are uh, useful to read, very useful. And the suttas without that would only come then later when one can figure out oneself what it's all about. Because it's, uh, uh, yes, it's um, very usually short, and to the point, and um, no explanations much how to do it. But if you want to read sutras, the only thing to read would be those. And they are from the Buddhist Publication Society. And they are, they are excellent, and very cheap, which is also an advantage. And there are many sutras there, and they have been explained by specifically by the who um, is now 89 and doesn't do that anymore. Now Bhikkhu Bodhi is doing it. And uh, he's also doing it very well. But he very much confines himself, actually, to translation and an overview. Whereas Nanaponica used to make it extremely detailed and, and really tell what has to be done. I've found those the greatest help to read those, such as with his explanations. So, So, could one say that mm, the seed of enlightenment and the seed of rebirth consciousness is the most continuous of existence? The most continuous of existence. So, it's not permanent, but. The seed of enlightenment and the seed of what? Rebirth consciousness. Well, reverse consciousness arises out of craving, mm-hmm. right? So as long as there's craving, there's reverse consciousness. Mm-hmm. So that is um, uh, within, yes, with, within the psyche, so that's there. And the uh, seed of enlightenment, yes, that's also there. So that also arises, which are you could put like, it's the six roots, again. Mm-hmm. The three wholesome and the three unwholesome, they're always there. And depending on how this particular person has lived their life, um, the, one of the, one side of the roots might be worse than the other, or better than the other. And, but it's all up to us in this life what to do with it. But this, the seeds, yes, it's quite right. The seed of rebirth is there because of the craving to be, as long as one isn't enlightened, and the seed of enlightenment because there's a potential to be enlightened. Yes, yes they're there. That's right. Anything else? Last chance to ask questions. Anything? And please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Let appreciation arise in you for the effort you've been making in the meditation course. Appreciate yourself. And with that appreciation, contentment arises about the effort, the discipline, the purification, which each one has practiced. Feel the contentment. And then, wrap yourself in a feeling of love, as if you were being wrapped in a beautiful, soft blanket. now let appreciation reach out to the person nearest you in this room appreciate him or her for the effort for all the work that he or she has done in this course and wrap a beautiful blanket of love around that person now appreciate everyone here for the effort everyone has made. Let this appreciation reach out to everyone and then wrap that beautiful soft blanket of love around each person. appreciate your parents for all the efforts they've made in their lives fill them with your appreciation gratitude wrap them in a soft beautiful blanket of love of those people who are nearest and dearest to you who may be waiting at home for you fill them with your appreciation for all the efforts they've ever made be grateful to them that they are part of your life and wrap this beautiful soft blanket of love around them It would be shorter than that. think of all your good friends appreciate them for all the efforts they've made in their lives and be grateful to them that they're part of your life, that they are your friends, fill them with appreciation and gratitude and then surround them with that beautiful soft blanket of love Now think of the people who are part of your life. Neighbors, people at work, people you meet here and there, in the shops, offices, on the street, traveling. Appreciate them for the effort they're making. Be grateful that they are part of your life. That you can relate to them and they will relate to you. Wrap all of them in a beautiful soft blanket of love. there's anyone in your life whom you don't like very much or towards whom you are totally indifferent appreciate that person's efforts too everybody has to make effort to be a human being be grateful to that person for the learning situation he or she has provided for you. And then wrap that person to a beautiful soft blanket of love. Become aware of the appreciation and gratitude and love that reside in your heart, and let them spill out far and wide, first to people around here, and then further and further as the strength and power of your heart will reach touching people everywhere with appreciation with gratitude that they are part of our family of mankind together with us and extending and enlarging This beautiful soft blanket of love to such a dimension that it can embrace beings everywhere. Your attention back on yourself feel the joy and contentment that comes from loving and appreciating and being grateful feel the joy and contentment fill yourself with it surround yourself with them Anchor them in your heart, so that there's always access to joy and contentment. We share the merits we have made in this meditation retreat with all our teachers, with our parents, our loved ones, our friends and our enemies, if there are any. We share the merits with the nuns and laywomen of this convent, who looked after us beautifully. We share the merits with Margaret, who was instrumental in arranging this retreat. We share with all the devas who are present. We share with all beings who may have benefit from these merits and we share the merits with each other. I now officially end this meditation retreat the noble silence is at an end. May beings everywhere find happiness. May you all be very happy.